think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 119 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 120th episode. I'm Mark Carboneau. I'm Anson Rainbow. And uh, this week, once again, we have joining us a special guest, uh, Paul Wells of McLean's Magazine, f- formerly of other parishes, but uh, now settled back in. How are you? Doing, doing very good. Can't complain. Hoping to have a good conversation today on a little bit of a niche topic. Um, but That's what true. is this podcast, if not uh, about niche topics around political staffing about comm staffers specifically um, and we thought it would be good to get a senior journalist voice on sort of the trends and the changes in terms of communication staffers in ottawa um, both governments and opposition and sort of what the incentive structures are around there so we thought you'd be good to have on uh yeah i mean as a columnist i remember i had um coffee with uh sandra buckler stephen harper's the, the first communications director that he had selected after he became prime minister. And I said, you know, as a columnist, uh, if you don't give me information, I can just make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's in your interest to tell me what's actually happening because I'm just going to say stuff. Yeah. So I'm the worst guy to ask about, about relations between journalists and, um, and, uh, communication staffers because, uh, I need communication staffers less than almost any of my colleagues. But I got to say, lately, that's a pretty handy uh, situation to be in because what I what I see when I when I interact with communications people and what I hear from my colleagues is um, it is often a very tense uh, relationship in which we give and we give and we give and we never get. (laughs) (laughs) So to sort of backtrack to, you know, my beginning in Ottawa was as a comp staffer of sorts. And my first job was basically putting Harper government into press releases. And that, that was my value add. The department would send up a press release. I'd look it over, make sure there were no typos. Very rarely caught them. Well, well-staffed department. Um, and then add, you know, Harper government on, onto the start of it. And then as I sort of grew up in that role, you know, when you start to the extent that Harper communication staffer ever did communicate with journalists, um, it was a very nervous exercise. Um, because of sort of the fear that was instilled in comm staff. And that led to risk aversion in the Harper government. But now under the Trudeau government, I feel like that risk aversion has sort of become a permanent fixture of Ottawa. That risk aversion basically is say nothing that does not put your boss in a tremendously shining good light. Um, and if it doesn't, just play dead. Don't respond to the emails. Um, don't talk to them at all because, you know, less fuel to the fire. They can't write a story if they have nothing nothing to write on, unlike... Yeah. Um, uh, there, so I, I, I came here, God save us, in 1994, uh, in the second year of Jean Chrétien's government. And there were always um, press secretaries whose only job was to convey to me what was already in the news release, uh, who, who would not have been capable and weren't willing to uh, uh, explain government policy, explain government thinking, uh, probably even in those days, the majority of, of, of press secretaries were not uh, equipped or interested in going further. But there were always people who uh, would tell you what the government was thinking, would explain the trade-offs, would um, give you a sense of uh, uh, paths not taken by the government uh, and the reason why they had decided not to do things that way, um, who would have a conversation with you. 
Um, and as a young reporter coming from Montreal, uh, it took me a month to find those who, out who those people were. And they became the, the people I interacted with the most. Um, um, under Stephen Harper, most of that ground to a halt very quickly. And it was it, it, uh, communications between the government, uh, the political government, the, 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 the conservatives and the press gallery became very transactional. As Harper said early on, when I have something to announce, I'll tell you. Uh, and um, we just thought that was Harper being Harper. And it was a, a member of Harper's staff who said to me, I don't think you people understand how significant that declaration was. <laughs> it, it was very much a marching order. And um, it took me a while to find workarounds, to find people who would talk to me off the record. Um, uh, notoriously Harper's own chief of staff at the time, Ian Brody was one of those people. Uh, and, uh, and there were, there were, there were always several others. When, when Brody moved on, there were, he was replaced, uh, his successor, Guy Giorno, Harper's next chief of staff, was absolutely not one of those people who would talk, <laughs> but I would find other people. Um, and the surprise was that when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, even during the first two years of that government, when I was essentially not antagonistic towards the government, when I was essentially uh, not a problem for Justin Trudeau, it was very hard to find anyone who would uh, have that kind of conversation with you. Notoriously, one of the very few people who would was Gerald Butts, his, his principal secretary. Mm -hmm. Then a bad thing happened and Jerry had to go and he hasn't been really replaced by people you can have that sort of uh, conversation with. Um, the number's not zero, but it's, 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 it's very small. Um, I'm going to try and hold myself to short answers and you can see I'm going to have not a lot of success. The, the thing that's interesting that got very much overlooked at the time was that when Harper brought the hammer down and... Um, uh, the government stopped sort of volunteering information and context to journalists. Similar things were happening all over. Uh, in the liberal governments of... It was sort of the age of social media coming well, to fruition. I, yeah, and I think the big thing that happened was that around, around the same time Stephen Harper became prime minister, uh, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram... Uh, started to take off and suddenly there was a cacophony where there had been kind of narrow drinking straws of, of information. Uh, so the Liberal governments of Ontario and, and British Columbia um, got in trouble because government staffers were discovered uh, having uh, Gmail accounts that they were using to communicate with, with journalists so that they could uh, escape access laws. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think more significant the tension between the White House uh, press gallery and, and Barack Obama's government starting in 2009 were very high to the extent that the White House gallery got Len Downey, former executive editor of the Washington Post, to write a report in which he said that um, the Obama White House was the most secretive modern White House. And what very few people in this town paused to wonder was... Um, if Stephen Harper was being that way just because he was like a dick, what was what was Barack Obama's excuse? Yeah, exactly. And I and I think I think you anticipate my my conclusion, which is that they were discovering 
all kinds of reasons not to be chatty because that in the echo chamber of social media, that stuff would be amplified and get out of control very quickly. And they were discovering alternative paths to get to their target audiences that they didn't need us. And that's a revolution that I think very few people uh, in, in my line of work have really thought about the consequences of. Yeah, so, so two of those, in addition to sort of the direct communication route over social media, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the hallmarks of it was 24-7, I think, if yes. I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah. 24-7, the, uh, the much-panned uh, YouTube videos that the Harper uh, Stratcom Shop and PMO put together mm-hmm. um, that would have viewership of a couple hundred that you had to believe were limited within sort of a five-block radius of this. The Trudeau government now is doing something uh, very similar, although, you know, slightly rejigged. And then the Conservatives' other sort of main tact um, that it's credited with uh, innovating on, at least in the uh, in the Canadian sphere, is going directly to ethnic media, sort of small yeah. radio stations, uh, local papers, speaking directly to those constituencies, yeah. rather than going through the Toronto Star, the National Post, etc. Mm. So how does that, to, to continue sort of on that tact, how does that carry over into the Trudeau government? We have... <clears throat> Like you said, Jerry Butts is out. He was one of the voices that it seemed like a lot of journalists would go to. He was often, you know, the the source on off the record who wasn't authorized to speak publicly about about a given thing. Um, but across all of Ottawa now, there are a lot less people willing to talk. Yeah, it was always both the examples. I think it's telling that you gave were at the sort of principal secretary level of the PMO, and it's not sort of at the ministerial level. Yeah, we're in an Ottawa where often the ministers are panned for not being um, in charge of very much or having very short leashes from the PMO, and there don't seem to be clear channels into the minister's offices to explain what they're thinking rather than sort of um, the big picture of the government. Do you think that's that's a fair characterization? Yeah. Um, so uh, two examples from uh, the career of the late lamented Bill Morneau, who was the finance minister until he wasn't. Um, well, the OECD job came up. Yeah, <laughs> someone's someone's got to apply. You can't, you can't turn on that kind of. Opinion. Someone's got to apply for a job that no North American can possibly get in this <laughs> round. Um, uh, Morneau's a nice guy. Uh, he's a thoughtful guy. Uh, he had a real career before he came into politics, but he had never done politics before. He was one of the eighty uh, percent of the Liberal Caucus who, starting. Uh, when, when the House came back at the end of 2015, had never been a member of parliament before. And suddenly he was the finance minister. He was, he was, he was captured almost immediately by um, his political staff. Uh, they would insist it was for his own protection. And he was kept away from sharp objects like reporters' pens. And, uh, uh, and notoriously, when he did take a reporter's question in a, in a news conference or in an interview, he would not normally answer the question with something resembling an answer, right? He would, he was, he was so dedicated to pivot to message that it was freaking obvious that that's what he was doing. And, and, um, you need to be subtler. Um, early on, like within the first several weeks of this government, I was at a Starbucks on, on Sparks, or a Bridgehead on Spark Street with some colleagues and in walks Bill Morneau with some people from his office. The finance minister's building is just around the corner. I said, hi, minister, how are you doing? And I said, uh, you know, hey, we should have a coffee sometime, which 
I'm old enough to remember that's not that didn't used to be a revolutionary or like or a, a bold or saucy thing to say to mm-hmm. a minister. That's a threat, even. Yeah, it's just <laughs> sit down and have coffee, you know, or don't. I mean, I I have occasionally been told by politicians I don't do that sort of thing, whatever. Right? Months go by, there's no coffee. That's great. Um, at some point, I was interacting with someone in his office, and that guy said, "Hey, I know you want to have coffee with the minister." I mean, I mean, like closer to a year down the road than than <laughs> than to several weeks. I know you want been wanting to have coffee with the minister. We're working on it, and I said, "Great, thanks." What I thought to myself was, "You are not working on me having coffee with the minister because <laughs> it was taken a year, you know." But I honestly believe that they probably have in a in a in a uh, in a spreadsheet somewhere. Uh, there's a cell for. Uh, maybe someday or not pressing or something. And yep. Coffee with Paul Wells, McLean's Magazine, was in that cell, right? So that they would see it every once in a while. And, um, but they, they sure weren't going to um, uh, sit Morneau down in front of, uh, in front of a journalist without, without it being transactional, without knowing what were the questions going to be, what do we have to brief the minister on, uh, you know, and 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 I think that when you add that up with all the stakeholders that he didn't didn't meet, because once he was out, we heard, for instance, from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who said this was the first finance minister they'd ever dealt with, who they hadn't dealt with, who hadn't come and just ch- chatted with the CFIB. Mm-hmm. CFIB's got an agenda. They 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 they, they you know they have set answers to certain questions on taxation and so on. But my God, they're also every corner store in the country. Why would you not? want to have a chat with the head of the CFIB, you know. Um, then there was another time when um, Morneau spent the summer of 2017 trying to make those changes to tax treatment of small businesses. Yeah. And the doctors were up in arms. And yeah. 2017-2018. And, uh, and it was just a terrible battering that they took. And finally they amended... They, they made just enough changes so that they could retreat without having to admit they'd retreated. And then someone in Morna's office, uh, to their credit, uh, said, you know, we should humanize the guy. Let's get a, let's get that Paul Wells from McLean's to, to sit down with them. And they actually gave me a day of the finance minister's time in Toronto, in his riding, following him around and talking with him like, Coffee in the morning, and then after a couple meetings, and then lunch, pizza lunch in his writing office, and like the whole spread. And the piece I wrote very much reflected uh, his thinking and his arguments and his analysis of what had gone well and poorly. But it was also written in a kind of a snarky, Wellsian tone, <laughs> sure. you know. You got a brand, you know. That's a- <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, They'd gotten into trouble for spending sixty thousand dollars on the photo on the cover of the budget document, and as as we as we left this coffee shop, uh, some random citizen accosted him and said, "Hey, Bill Morneau, you know, if you want a photo for the next cover of your next budget, I can do it for twenty bucks." And like, and I I took notes and I put that in the story. And it was funny. <laughs> um, uh, I did not hear. Uh, for well or ill, I did not hear anything from anyone in his office after that story appeared. Just crickets. Because I think they were mystified. I think they were not sure how to handle a story that broadly reflected the minister's thinking, but also w- didn't sound like a 
It was fawning. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not fawning. Um, and uh, and then the the last thing was I I had had as, as I say a day in Toronto with the guy. The first half of the day we spent it at the Wii headquarters with the Keel Brothers. No, no word of a lie. Ominous. Um, I, 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 like the, the following week, as I was putting stuff together for the piece, they said, um, "Hey, I think you know we got something kind of special for you. I think we can get you a half hour with." And they named two very senior staffers in his office. Uh, and it's off the record and, you know, but I think it, you know, and I, I, I was, I just reflected on how, um, getting me a day of the minister's time was no sweat, but getting me a half hour with two senior staffers, that was the champagne room. <laughs> like that was the really exciting thing. And it made me think that this is the priority set. This is like, you know, whose time is really valuable. And it's the people actually running the department, and they're not the ones named minister. So one of the dynamics there is that you you account for sort of Bill Morneau being led around by his handlers quite a bit. Um, infamously, a lot of staff are appointed by PMO, chiefs of staff generally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the staff sort of come out in the relationship between the minister's preferences and what the chief of staff hires, and the minister can you know be more hands-on or more hands-off. But what you're describing seems to be sort of a weakening of ministerial power or ministerial reputation in the media or their ability to control their own image yeah. because of the extent to which staff isolate them from media, to the extent to which staff are risk adverse, afraid of being yelled at from the PMO and others about, you know, maybe something going awry or maybe stepping on the government's messaging of the day to the point where it seems like, you know, in on the policy space, in the comm space and in others, that ministers are sort of put in hermetic boxes um, and sealed up and not allowed to go anywhere, but yeah. you know, spend yeah. three hours preparing for question period every day. If you and open then, it, you lose all the resale value. <laughs> it's, everyone knows this. And then marched back uh, down to their ministerial office across town, or I guess even that's in a car um, for most of them. So just it's comms as one of the means that ministerial power and sort of ministerial independence is weakening seems to be the one of the themes here. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to, I've got a few things to say. First of all, is that like, to some extent I'm guessing, right? Because uh, I, I have, one has, my colleagues have less access to the decision-making process than we ever had or than our predecessors ever had. Um, I also don't. Th I also don't think it's true that ministers uh, don't run their departments. I think if you get any minister, they'll say, "I make an astonishing number of choices and decisions." But I think those decisions are prepared for them by the department, massaged for them by staff, and then put to them as binaries. Remember the we controversy. The prime minister actually said it was a binary choice. It was we runs it, we charity runs it, or there is no program. Uh, and then. I think unconscionably, he actually he actually blamed the department for framing it as a binary choice. Well, uh, any minister, certainly the prime minister, can say, "Like bugger off! I, I I decline your binary choice. Give me bring me nuance. You know, yeah. I demand nuance." Um, um, 
So I think like a minister can is a bit of a, you know, I can imagine some ministers being essentially Skinner rats. They're presented with levers and they press the lever or they don't press the lever. Um, and that's not a sort of a rich or nuanced way to look at the world. Um, uh, and also, I, I mean, I have now made a point whenever I speak to somebody who interacts with Justin Trudeau, I ask them, what's that like? And I, and I, I try to leave it as a kind of an open question. You can tell me it's hell. You can tell me you wish he'd been prime minister 30 years ago, whatever. Almost invariably, they describe him as a thoughtful guy who pushes back against assumptions, who's willing to blue sky, who's willing to engage hypotheticals in private conversation, who uh, retains the briefing. Uh, people don't. People who've been in a, in, a, in a meeting with Justin Trudeau don't tend to badmouth him. Uh, but I do think the process is um, has the results that we've seen. Uh, um, you've got a government that consults but doesn't listen. You've got a government that uh, uh, is obviously very late on decisions that are lower down the priority list because because a small number of people are making the decisions and and and, and there's choke points in the process. You got a government that spends more on polling than any of its predecessors, spends more on uh, consultants than any of its predecessors because its re relations with the public service are cordial but essentially dysfunctional. Uh, and um, uh, you, 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 and 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 when you put a question to somebody in communications function in this government, you're not asking a question that gets an answer. You're emitting a stimulus that that that. <laughs> Uh, engages a process that plainly dozens of people are involved in and the product that comes out often bears an only coincidental relationship to your damned question right <laughs> you ask a question four days later you you receive a paragraph and that's um, that makes our job hard who cares I think it also insulates them from the immediate consequences of, of thinking about what they're doing and that's why they're that, that's why this government's so-called scandals tend essentially to have to take the form of surprises. They think things. They think the world works a certain way, and they're amazed to discover the world doesn't work a certain way. Yeah, that's because they haven't engaged with the world until near the end of the process. There's a sort of, I think, take the other side of the coin on what we were talking about earlier with uh, sort of the, the changing technological side uh, of things in, in politics. I think also you've seen since you know about middle of the last decade in accelerating partisan polarization to some extent or ideological polarization however you want to put it uh and, and i'm i'm just thinking about how that would impact how people think about these questions in government where you know in in the 90s you you get a question you answer it you don't think too much about it because you know it'll it'll be on the news or it won't and the other guys are not that different at the end of the day and you know if you if you throw them a little a little juicy steak here and there it's not the end of the world I think now there is more of a tendency to think, okay, so if we mess up, not only is there this technological side of it, but there's also the bad people will win. Yeah. And that's the the real the real scary thing. Is there is that something you've noticed that enters into the the calculations at that level? Yeah, so um I'm not on Twitter. Uh, Twitter for self-care reasons. Very smart, I, I, yeah. I now, since we started doing Twitter Spaces, I now have a secret Twitter account that I don't. I don't. I never tweet. 
Um, so you're not the person squatting on your old. I am not. I am not. Not. I am not. Right here. I am not English PW. That is uh, <laughs> someone of whom I have a low opinion. Who's, who's squatting my old uh, handle? Um, but I look, so, uh, sometimes when I see a new face, uh, a new name on a communications product from the government, I, I, I look either at, um, LinkedIn or on their Twitter account to see what kind of person is this. And just almost invariably, they are, uh, very young, superbly educated and dedicating, dedicated to retweeting some more senior liberal staffers trash talk of the conservatives they seem to like they work very hard at producing their communications product and then they retweet tyler meredith uh talking shit about the conservatives and i think man i hope you're going out and uh like having a beer and some nachos afterwards because that's a very narrow experience but the the retweeting tyler meredith is 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 what you were talking about it's it's um they justify what they do by telling themselves that uh, Canada um, is in deep shit if they lose, that the people uh, against them uh, are uh, unCanadian in their values, unscrupulous in their methods, uh, and 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 will hurt the country badly uh, if if the Liberals lose. And it's not a confection. Uh, it's uh, they'd been in office for a year when Britain voted for Brexit and America voted for Trump. And uh, uh, democracy has often seemed on the back foot around the world. Uh, uh, reproductive choice, uh, same-sex uh, marriage and, 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 and um, uh, uh, indigenous reconciliation. Uh, uh, um, uh, all of these things are threatened. Uh, the cons- they they see the conservatives as unsteady advocates at best of 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 those elements of progress, and so they're in a fight. Um, and and I think that I think the communication stuff we've been talking about uh, accelerates that because when you need to have a uh, when you when you're constantly in conversation with voters, with academics, sometimes with journalists, with people who aren't part of your group. Who aren't working with you to produce the product then you need to explain yourself you need to justify yourself you need to um uh put water in your wine there's stuff i absolutely won't back down on and there's other stuff that i feel less strongly about but if you spend days or weeks at a time um working together on a communications product that asserts perfect virtue, that there were no trade-offs, nothing was a hard call, everything was obvious because, you know, we've got Canadians back, we stand with Canadians from right from coast to coast. All of the, all of the rote phrases the Prime Minister uses to end his sentences, they, they, they amount to assertions of perfect virtue. Um, And then you put it out in the world and someone, someone, finds a weakness you didn't notice, uh, uh, notices a flaw that you had you had all agreed to overlook, uh, is snarky. Um, I, I, I just think people are less used to that than they used to be uh, because people 
spend more time in their bubbles, not just political staffers, certainly not just liberal political staffers, but everyone now in, 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 in the sort of microclimate that we all inhabit, we're less used to being disagreed with and they don't take it as well. Yeah, no, and certainly when I worked in, in politics, it was, you, you kind of had to keep yourself like, it, it didn't do you any good to sort of engage a whole lot with what other people were, were saying. On the kind of, you know, you, in, in my role, which wasn't a comms role as such, it, it was helpful uh, to sort of dig in sometimes, see what the arguments were, and, and kind of at least pick them apart a little bit so I could come back and tell our comms people, you know, you could come back on this, this, and this. For them, it really didn't help them sometimes to have all the nuances, because then if a journalist calls them and they start trailing into nuance, they've they've already, you know, quote-unquote, lost that conversation, because yeah. that wasn't the point. Um, and, you know, something we've talked about a lot, too, on this show in the past is that, you know, if you think about a campaign, and people always, you know, discipline is something that people, I think, have come to dislike for, for good and bad reasons, I think, as we've said. Um, you know, a, a political campaign is a million-dollar-a-day kind of thing. And if you are spending your day as the leader of the Conservative Party apologizing for, you know, what the your candidate in Cypress Hills, Grasslands, and Saskatchewan, where they're going to win 85% of the vote is saying, yeah. but you're not talking to people in Toronto about that, you're, you know, you're doing this other thing, then it's it's a big problem for you, right? And it's, um, I think the, the incentive structure fundamentally, and, I, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, is, is really quite bad. It's, it just leads you to some bad places in terms of uh, the, the public interest is kind of the first one to lose in these situations. Yeah. Where, it, you know, you're looking at a, a set of options where your options are don't say anything and the story typically will go away, mm -hmm. uh, you know, depending on what it is. Uh, or you say something and it might be a great quote that everyone says, oh, yeah, great. Or it might just get other people mad and turn into a whole thing. And then you've got three, four days of this to deal. And now you're down, you know, if you're in the middle of an election campaign, yeah. three, four million dollars, uh, which is certainly not where you want to be and with a lot less runway to election day. Um, and, and I think there, too, you have the sort of cultural and technological kind of interacting with each other. And, I, you know, I think you pointed out post this election that, you know, we have a government elected on the smallest popular vote total of any modern government? Are we, yeah, the, are we quite the, there? The, the, the two lowest shares of popular vote of any government since Confederation yeah. were Trudeau 2019 and Trudeau 2021. It's, it, it's pretty impressive. And if you, if you heard the liberals talk about it, it was, you know, it was political money ball that yeah. really uh, come, come into life in a big way. And those are really the two ways to look at it, right? From the point of view of someone who's, you know, engaged in politics as, as a citizen, as a journalist, you look at that and you say, that, that can't be good. You know, <laughs> like that just, that cannot be a good thing. And then you hear from them. And of course, there's obviously some self-interest and self-congratulation going on. This is great. You know, this is exactly what we wanted. And it's hard to look at that split and come away feeling particularly good about that. Yeah. I mean... If nothing else, the liberals had better hope their their luck holds out, right? Like if you're if your hobby is parkour and you jump from <laughs> rooftop to rooftop, and 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 uh, you impress your friends by the fact that you the last two ledges you've managed to reach, you you hung on by your fingertip fingernails. Um, you better hope the next ledge that your fingernails hold out, or yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. or you're going for a tumble yes. and. It just seems to me I'm basically lazy. The lazy way to do it is to have policies and a discourse that more Canadians like. Mm 
<laughs> so that you don't need yeah. uh, uh, a genius cell full of PhDs running your get out the vote effort uh, so that you can absolutely, you know, like it's it, it's great that Jerry Butts, uh, you know, says on Twitter that, the, that we've got super geniuses running our get out the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would prefer reasonably smart people who are doing things that more Canadians can endorse yeah. like that. Seems to me the lazy. But that way, that know? presumes you need to put the work in, you know, 365 <laughs> days a year up until the election, yeah. rather than on during that 36 day rip period. Yeah, um, it's I, about how you govern and not how you run the campaign, and the emphasis seems to be on just tweaking the gears around how they run the campaign. So it's what's it, it's called data analytics. Uh, Tom Pitfield's yeah, uh, data sciences. Data sciences. Yes. Yeah. So I I. I uh, I mean, I stand to be corrected, but my the I believe the numbers are there's four PhDs working in Tom Pitfield's firm, and there's one PhD working in the Prime Minister's office. So you've, when you've got when you've got quadruple your 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 doctorate level talent uh, working at the uh, parkour by fingernails, <laughs> uh, and you know, and then your the people running innovation policy have. No idea what goes on in 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 a, in a research lab, you know, and on and on and on. It, it, to me, it's backward. I, I do want to say I think um, uh, uh, I don't measure government virtue by how forthcoming they are with journalists. I mean, it's obvious to anyone that our industry is collapsing badly. Um, so one of the upshots is the Edmonton Journal used to have a weekend. Uh, uh, week in review section with a couple of 2,000 word uh, features ab- about national politics and the Calgary Herald and the Montreal Gazette and the Windsor Star and the Hamilton Spectator and uh, there was a much richer discourse around politics and there was a lot more room for these kinds of nuanced discussions. Now, you, most reporters on the Hill are um, deadline uh um, incremental news lead, uh, not by temperament, but because that's the, that's those are the that's those the are the last jobs available. Yeah, exactly. And in that world, um, you can't uh, sort of be as discursive as you might once have been. But that doesn't mean that that Canada has vanished. I mean, there's still universities, there's still chambers of commerce. I covered Stefan Dion in, when he was intergovernmental affairs minister, going to give long, freaking long speeches <laughs> to the Chamber of Commerce of Levy about national unity. And then one day I said to myself, I'm falling behind on what Catherine McKenna has been saying as environment minister. Catherine's an old friend from long before she was in politics. And so it was actually difficult for us at McLean's to figure out how to cover her. And But I thought, well, she's still the damned environment minister. I should find out what she's been doing. Let's go to the speeches section on her on her website. And the website has no speeches section. So then I started going through YouTube, just Google Catherine McKenna big speech. You know, like it turned out that during her tenure as environment minister, by 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 the standards that I think anyone would would describe a, a major set speech that described the tenets and the logic and the conclusions of Canadian environmental policy, she hadn't given one. Um, to a chamber com like you, you could, it's easy enough to find her thanking the organizers of a conference. Or spitballing, like just saying, you know, we have to do this for our kids, you know. But um, 
when Jean Charest was the Minister of the Environment in the early 90s, before my time, even before my time as a political journalist, he gave a lot of long speeches. What's the benefit of giving a long speech? Your argument has to make sense, at least to yourself and uh, and to other people. And, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, you have to muster a list of things you've done, a list of things you're planning to do, an argument for why those have to be the next things, right? And it, uh, honestly, if you get out of the, and it's, it's not like Catherine was a particularly delinquent minister that, there are very few ministers who do this. And uh, no wonder major government initiatives vanish without a trace. They announce they're going to do something and then suddenly it's just gone and nobody can explain why. Because no one's talking. Yeah. You know? There's a couple we specifically like to take on. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave aside for now. But, uh. Yeah, just with the, the comp staffer hat on, sort of the way you would view speeches as saying, what is the message we want to communicate? Yeah. What's the line we want picked up or clipped for social media or for yeah. news or, mm-hmm. you know. And then the rest of the speech should be uninteresting as to make that line the only thing that's clippable from the speech. Yeah. Yeah, and, and certainly like in oppo roles, like I, my job was to watch some of these things and pick out the things that were awkward or dissonant in different parts of the country and, you know, be like, okay, well, make a note of that timestamp and come next election, we'll pull that out and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it was honorable work, but... Uh, <laughs> and so I, I guess we all agree on the, the state of communications in Ottawa as sort of lowest common denominator. I wonder if there's... And we've talked about it because of technology, um, because of the collapse of sort of the traditional media ecosystem. I wonder if there's any experience you have outside of politics. Like you you occasionally interview um, folks like Justice Abella yeah. um, and others outside of the strictly political sphere. And uh, Yeah, so I write about the arts, uh, mostly music I always have as a sideline. Yeah. Do you find that sort of same logic has bled into other uh, aspects of Canadian culture and Canadian society that folks in corporate Canada um, follow the playbook as, as strictly or, or folks on the bench or others? Yeah, I take that to be a leading question because I think we've had this conversation <laughs> and, and, and yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I first started thinking about this outside the political context when I spoke f- four or five years ago uh, to the tiny, scrappy Anglophone minority in Quebec City. Uh, um, they've got a like the whatever the community group is there has a good speaker series and I I went to talk about being a journalist, but Jack Todd who's the um, veteran uh, Habs columnist for the Montreal Gazette uh, was also talking and he spoke first and 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 the evolution of his beat that he described was very close to what I've been describing. Mm-hmm. So Jack used to. Uh, uh, ride in the passenger seat with uh, uh, a star player of the Montreal Canadiens as that guy drove to practice on a weekend, uh, cradling a beer between his knees <laughs> and describing highly problematic relationships that he was having off the ice and things like that, you know. And Jack would write some of that and not write some of it. And, you know, and at some point, a professional communications person came along and said, by God, that is never happening again, <laughs> right? And so now... Uh, uh, like I, 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 I persist in the belief that the Montreal Gazette is still part of uh, an important part of the universe for anyone at the Montreal Canadiens organization. And yet, 
the way Jack described it, he only ever interacts with Habs now behind a rope line outside the dressing room, you know, 40 minutes after the game or whenever the scrum time is. And yeah, you, you toss your question out and, and, and a couple of designated players say, well, we give 110% and, we, you know, <laughs> it's been a tough season for everyone, but we're really looking forward to our next shot. And, um, and similarly, in like people who write profiles of Hollywood celebrities mm-hmm. have much narrower access to Hollywood celebrities than ever. And, and I just think uh, as more and more journalists get laid off from journalism and get recycled in professional communications and almost everyone in professional communications, the first thing thought that occurs to them is, by God, I cannot let my guy talk. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we got the world we have. There's a, a to to that point. I think um, you know. I actually completely lost my thread. That's fine. Yeah. The <laughs> uh, the question I was going to ask is, and it, so you made reference to journalists going into professional communications. There's you know there's examples of that in Ottawa. There were in the Trudeau government. There was examples under the Harper government. It's by no by no means unique. Do you find when you interact with these folks that they become, you know, immediate converts to the um, sort of comms doctrine um, that's prevalent around Ottawa? Or do you find that they still keep somewhat of the, the journalistic um, element that they try and be more open, more forthcoming? Or, or do you find that they immediately embrace the logic of saying uh, it's better to say nothing at all? It's, the power you know, of no. it's, thank, thank you for the question. I'll get back to you and then never... Uh, never respond to those emails or do they keep sort of a different stripe? So uh, there are some who sort of um, uh, are bemused by the ironies that I've been describing. They tend to be in more junior positions. Uh, and then there are people who rocket to the very top on the political side uh, um, by learning quickly to dismiss our concerns as ridiculous carping, uh, um, uh, typical, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, both sidesism. Why are you, you know, why are you saying on the one hand or on the other when you just know that we're saving Canada and they're trying to tear it down, you know? Uh, and I mean, I, yeah, I'm just not going to name for this part of the thing, specific names, but I have call it former colleagues who used to stand outside of 24 Sussex and complain that the prime minister wasn't taking questions and then went into very senior political roles uh, and started telling their chiefs of government, no, like, take. by God, don't take <laughs> questions, you know. And in in one or two cases, I have hoped to have that conversation with them, but so far they, you know. Now, the, the thing that's really fun is... Um, when someone has been outside, has been on the journalism side, goes inside, acts like a perfect tool for a few years, and then comes out and 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 sidles up to me and 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 you know I, a few days ago on on the street as I was walking uh, back from lunch, I ran into someone who said, who just used to be a perfect stonewall, and now said to me, you know keep tearing a strip off of these guys uh, they you know it's it's worse than you know and well that that's great that thanks <laughs> you know i um i even understand it but uh, i i just think five percent more independent thinking inside within the constraints of caucus discipline and all that stuff actually improves y- your government 
it doesn't just like um uh anyway the sloganeering is not uh it's not only bad for for my life as a storyteller i think it i think it produces less reflective government so you said five percent more improves your government so say we put you in the role of press secretary to freeland or director of comms to freeland what do you do differently is it you're more clear on those relationships you're more forthcoming with information you build the relationships a little differently you communicate in a different way um i invite the minister to find occasions to uh speak in paragraphs uh that presumably they themselves construct or work with someone to construct and not just yeah have handed to them um i uh Uh, I encourage there's so there's there are journalists who are uh, not team players but are not just like stupidly antagonistic. I would seek those out and I would I would try and uh, interact with those people and and like I mean this person asks hard questions. Well, the freaking universe asks hard questions. Let's go and take some of this person's questions as rehearsal for dealing with the hard questions the universe throws at us, you know? Um, I, uh, um, I would, uh, admit, I would admit more frequently that some of these are hard questions. Um, uh, like sort of tautologies aren't encouraging when, when, well, we've got Canadians backs, so we're doing it this way and the other people are bad. Uh, to me is not a, um, that doesn't sound like the internal conversations we've all had since March 2020. Uh, is it safe to go to the grocery store? Can uh, for people who live alone, can I meet someone for a coffee or or do I have to continue going slowly crazy here at home? And then and then to hear from a government that seems to believe that everything's easy, everything's obvious, I don't think that encourages them as much as these people think it encourages them. So I would I would acknowledge difficult trade-offs. Um, um, uh, binary choices between two things you'd like to have done, but you can only do one of them. You know, things like that. I would talk in complexity. I honestly don't think, um, since you mentioned Freeland, one of her favorite little things to say these days is, I think Canadians are smart. It's funny how rarely she talks as though she believed that. On sort of that that subject, I think you know we talked about at, at bottom of this is kind of that that money ball thing where it's people have figured out that it, you know sure we could be five percent more more effusive and and, and yeah. talk a little more, but you know if we don't do that then we become seven percent more you know competitive in another dimension, and I suppose it's you know how do you sort of is that a genie we can put back in a bottle in any meaningful way because it, it does seem like it kind of goes into a spiral that doesn't end anywhere particularly good so lately um as i as i as i pull back from the events of the day and just think in general i think we may actually just be in a time where things are heading downhill uh andrew potter's book on decline uh, resonates i think it, available it, at fine booksellers yes <laughs> i know andrew would, andrew would, that's andrew potter's book on decline <laughs> which is published on biblioasis um uh 
I mean, if you just look at the major events in world history since 2000, it's just been one damn thing after another. And I, I think it's entirely possible that um, uh, thoughtful conversation is less and less rewarded and uh, loudishness is more and more rewarded and that's not going to turn around soon. But I notice uh, that uh, Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney uh, both had interesting runs as Premier of Alberta as people who like to give long answers to complex questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Kenny's not necessarily done for yet. And if he loses, it'll be to Notley, who, you know, and neither of them pays much attention to the playbook that is gospel here. I just wrote a column about the Montreal mayoral election and the uh, Projet Montréal, uh, which... Um, as a party has pretty much actively shunned um, the kind of pat communications advice that is taken as gospel here in Ottawa. Uh, and they've had a bumpy ride, but they have, uh, they just got uh, uh, their mayor elected to a second term. Um, uh, Ned Nenshi, Don Iveson, there are mayors around uh, um, who um, seem uninterested in sort of packaging their stuff to be beyond recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and in this government, uh, ministers like Jean-Yves Duclos and Carla Qualtro, um, uh, show that, um, the, the penalties for giving thoughtful answers to questions are not absolute, at least, you know, and yeah. that you can rise to a certain level, uh, without, um, uh, treating Canadians to their faces as though you could get away with anything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I guess the common denominator between that list of names would be sort of the individual in the big seat um, in each of those cases, right? Yeah. Where we've been talking about um, politics federally, where you have, you know, 45, 50, however ministers there are these days. Yeah. um, And one person in the big chair. And if that person... Uh, be it Harper, Trudeau, sort of in my, uh, in my, my living memory. Um, if they are not inclined towards that more communicative style, then, you know, it's less forthcoming among the ministers. Yeah. With a few exceptions, a few notable exceptions in Ottawa these days. Um, but the other examples are where they are, you know, responsible to no one else. Rachel Notley, Jason Kenney are all in charge of their own, and it's part of their personality. They are not handled well by staff. Mm-hmm. Um, staff are not in charge of their of their words in the same way, and it's because of who they are. It's sort yeah. of intrinsic to them as a human being, rather than sort of the Morneau who, you know, came to Ottawa and said, it seems like he said, you know, tell me what you need me to do. Um, tell me how the game is played here, and I'll play it the way you tell me. Yeah. Rather than saying, you know, I've been successful on Bay Street. I'm going to come and show Ottawa um, how it's how yeah. I perform, how to run things. Uh, and I mean, and one sees intermediate cases. One sees uh, examples of uh, members of parliament who are interesting people uh, in secret. <laughs> <laughs> But who have decided that you can't, that, that, that you don't get anywhere being that person. And yeah. so they're going to be the kind of person they need to. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I was going to say toxic, but toxic is a heavy word. I think it's unfortunate how often, uh, especially uh, 
outside the pandemic lockdown, Justin Trudeau appears in public with his caucus or his cabinet arrayed behind him, nodding to everything he says. Potted plants. Yeah, that's not the way people behave. And I don't think it's what I don't think I don't think people enjoy seeing that. I think uh, brutishly stupid political staffers <laughs> like to see that. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's times when I want to tell them that that plainly because I'm tired of pretending I'm impressed by that shit. <laughs> I mean, there are three of us in this room, for example. Between the three of us, I'm sure we could find any number of topics on which we very profoundly disagree. Yeah, and it's it's very hard. And you know, I thought this often when I worked in politics. It's it's the, the sort of need for caucus unanimity on things can, and you know, there's a solidarity aspect of it, which I think is, is fine. But even just in in conversation, you know, you expect me to believe you get 25 people in a room and they're all like, "Yep, sounds good. Okay, yep. Next, next question. Let's, oh, we all agree on that too. Okay, very good. Yeah, it's it's very it's very hard to believe. So it's uh, not not one of our more attractive aspects of our politics, and certainly in the UK, which you know that similar system for for all its warts, uh, they seem to disagree with each other a lot more internally than than we do here. Yeah, I um, at some level pretty early. We bump up in against some Canadian cultural. Sure. We like to get along. Uh, we don't like to make a fuss. Um, uh, but I would say the the main times that this prime minister has gotten in trouble for things he's done since he became prime minister. So like take blackface out of the equation. Uh, it's been for uh, ambitious government action that received too little scrutiny while it was being hatched. Mm-hmm. They have in, again and again and again gotten in trouble because they all agree on shit and because they don't let hard questions be asked earlier. Uh, and, um, I, you know, if, if that was my line of work, I would want to get in the habit of... Uh, creating fewer problems for myself, not the same problems over and over again. So that flows into a topic a little a little away from the comms, but one that I've been meaning to explore sort of at length on this at, at another day, but we can sort of peek into a little bit now, is, you know, the cabinet table is sort of the, seen as the, the sacrosanct hierarchy of decision-making um, in Ottawa. And yet, if you're familiar with the process behind cabinet meetings, you know, ministers get sent documents a few days in advance. They are put in a binder, and unless their staff um, feels the need to brief them on a particular measure, they're sort of table dropped. There's a presentation around the cabinet table, and then folks hash it out. Yeah, it is not some you know thoughtful, well considered process where they're scrutinizing the documents for hours on end. Yeah, Generally, of Athens it's sort of yeah. <laughs> hot takes. Um, largely political considerations or writing considerations are what ministers are able to bring to that. And it's not this, you know, pinnacle of policy making where everyone is saying, well, the decimal point should be there in terms of the dollars spent. It's rather just, you know, you can read the various books that have been written about um, yeah. decisions made around cabinet tables. But the sort of process of cabinet itself is one I find myself very skeptical of. Um, at least in terms of my understanding of it, where it's basically, you know, you're sitting down with 20 people, you give them a presentation like anyone would receive in school, and you say, so what are your thoughts, guys? Yeah. Um, is this great or, or not? And we all have to agree on it as we leave the room, and that sort of... In two hours. It. Yeah. <laughs> it you know, it, there are events, certainly, or there are 
Uh, certainly files where this is not the case, but generally this is sort of my sense of things. And then you have um, ministers who complain about the number of cabinet meetings. Um, so cabinet meetings get cut down and decisions, the, the time allocated to any given decision is shorter and shorter. And so sort of the, the first question is, is our, cabinet pro- is our cabinet process broken? Should we reconsider it? Yeah. Are ministers spending three hours in question or dealing with question period every day instead of um, any time uh, seriously considering things? So, um, I mean, yeah, it's all terrible. Uh, uh, (laughs) But let me be devil's advocate for a bit. Um, uh, You could could mount actually a pretty robust argument that how bad can it be given that Canada is still Canada, right? That um, we came out of COVID in a pretty sketchy neighborhood like north of Donald Trump's United States with the second lowest death toll in in, in the G7 with uh, at least for a, for a stretch there the highest uh, vac- vaccination level in the G7 that we wrote out the Donald Trump presidency with modest damage um, uh, that students still move to Canada uh, highly mobile tech workers still want to work in Canada um, uh, our airports aren't bad, you know, on and on and on. Um, uh, and I, I, I do think that for a lot of the people inside government, that that the stuff that I engage in, the the, the carping that I engage in, and the, you know, that it, it comes off as sort of dance criticism, like, you know, oh, oh, sure, I didn't really execute that plie, but um, uh it's still a great country, right? Uh, it's still a country where people are kind of interested when Justin, you know, when when Justin Trudeau travels. Uh, there's a little bit of a free song of interest when he walks into a room, and so on and so on. Um, but I do think, look, nobody involved with research and innovation policy in Canada thinks that it's well run here, and nobody thinks it's gotten better under this government. Uh, our army has huge culture problems that are past overdue being addressed but um incidentally it's not at all clear what this government wants to do with it as an army uh uh we don't know what our government thinks about china (laughs) you know these are not these are not um these are not minor considerations and uh and again getting back to parkour with fingernails um at some point, that starts to add up, and an electorate will say, "This is not good enough." And uh, and there's not there's enough precedent for cases where, when that happens, electorates are not super interested in kicking the tires on the alternative. And if you really do think you're in a fight for Canada, why would you not um, fight as well as you can for Canada, and not get into so many ruts uh, as I think as I think. This prime minister and this government have done, you know. So that's why I engage in the dance criticism that I do. Entirely fair and mindful of your time, uh, <laughs> I think we will we will wrap it there. So thank you very much, Paul. Uh, really, quite much appreciated. Thanks. And, uh, yeah. Uh, for for all for all the folks listening, of course, you can find us at Pants Pod. You cannot find Paul on Twitter. Good for him. <laughs> Stay strong on Facebook. <laughs> I am. I do have a. I've got a real Facebook for friends and a fake Facebook for uh, for. Uh, 
readers. So I yeah. know which category I am in now. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. Thanks.